invite you to take your Bibles now, if you would like, to follow along and turn to Matthew chapter 3. First book in the New Testament, third chapter, Matthew 3. We begin today a series of probably four messages on the biblical teaching concerning baptism And I'll give you some reasons for why we're doing that after we read this passage of Scripture. What you should especially look for here, as it relates to what I'm going to say, is the meaning of John the Baptist's baptism. Why did he come baptizing? And how did it relate to the Jews to whom he was preaching? We'll read the whole chapter. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district round the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. And John, but John, tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, as I try to unfold part of this text for our understanding and faith, I pray you'd help me and help the listeners here. Grant that there would be truth in my mouth and clarity, and winsomeness, and spiritual power flowing, and that hearts would be made 
receptive to what is true and protected from anything false or imbalanced. Lord, if you would draw near among us and be at work in the people and in me, a wonderful, mighty transaction of salvation and sanctification could happen in these next few minutes. So I plead with you, come. Leave us not to our own flesh or devices or intellect or voice or power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me give you several reasons for why we're doing a series on baptism. I put, I put these, I think, in the star this week, so some of you may have seen them already or will. Reason number one is that in 17 years of preaching, I've never preached to my remembrance a single sermon on baptism. And I'm a Baptist. So we're not hung up on this. Reason number two. Jesus made baptism part of his ministry and part of our mission. John the Baptist comes baptizing. Jesus picks it up. John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Do you ever think about Jesus having a ministry of baptism? The next verse qualifies it and says, Not that Jesus himself did the actual immersing, but the disciples did it. Then at the end of the gospel it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we have a commission. We are to go into the city and go to the nations and make disciples. Win people to Christ. And part of that disciple making is baptizing people. It's a command. It's not an option for us. It's not a denominational thing. It's a God thing. No human made this up. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said, go do this. And therefore, it's not something to mainly argue about. It's something mainly to obey and do. (coughs) Reason number three. The practice of baptism in the early church was universal. That is, there were no unbaptized believers with one exception. The thief on the cross. Every other believer that we meet in the New Testament is a baptized believer. And one of the interesting confirmations of how universal the practice was in the New Testament is Romans 6. In Romans 6, Paul is tackling a teaching that he had heard about where people were saying, shall we sin that grace may abound? Because they've heard that Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so let's all sin because the goal of life is to see grace abound and God be glorified. That's the way some people handle doctrine. So Paul responds to that in Romans 6 by saying, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now, 
picture this. Paul's probably writing from Corinth. He's never been to Rome, he says in the letter, but he wants to come to Rome. So he's writing to a church he's never met, hundreds of miles away, and he might ask in those early days, I wonder if they are baptizing the way they should. I wonder if people in the Roman church are baptized. And he doesn't even raise the question. He assumes it hundreds of miles away in a church plant that he didn't plant and he doesn't know who planted probably. He just assumes, he says to them, now look, you people who are thinking that you can sin that grace may abound, dead people don't sin. And when you got baptized, what you were showing is that you all died with Jesus. Wake up to the meaning of your baptism. So that's just a little clue for how universal the practice was in the New Testament. Every Christian, by definition, was a baptized believer. And therefore, we should practice it. If we want to bring our lives and our church into sync with the early church and the New Testament church, we need to take baptism seriously and practice it faithfully. Last reason. Practical on-site reason. Last January, the staff, the pastoral staff, went away to pray, as we always do in the first week of the year, and seek the Lord about the future of our church and about plans for the spring and summer. And as we were praying and wrestling together, we said to ourselves, you know, it may be that we are not acting as biblically as we should in the way we provide closure for people who have heard the gospel preached at Bethlehem. What I mean is this. You, everybody knows Billy Graham and how he does it, right? You preach... And then you invite people to come out of their seats. Your friends will wait for you. The buses won't leave. And assemble with prepared counselors at the front and receive a word of encouragement. Fill out some materials. Receive some materials and then go. And a lot of churches do that. I grew up in a church that gave a so-called invitation or altar call every Sunday while everybody waited for that to happen in the service. Now, if you go to the New Testament and look to see how they did it, you're you're hard put to find anything quite like that, which is one of the reasons I'm a little hesitant to make that a regular practice. But we said to ourselves as we were praying and seeking the Lord, In the New Testament, as Paul went from synagogue to synagogue or to Areopagus, for example, and preached the gospel, when he was done, there were believers and he connected with them. You know, it'll say something like, not a few women of noble standing believed or something like that. Acts 17, 4, 12, 34. And so he connected. He knew, he found out somehow who had responded in faith And then they baptized, and then they formed a church. So, as we pondered the the biblical connection by which people move from being just anonymous people out there, hearing the gospel, being wrought upon by the Holy Spirit, being drawn to faith, that move that happens here on Sunday morning, and a public declaration of 
I'm in. I'm a Christian. I'm part of that group now. The answer we got was baptism. Baptism is the New Testament going public and testifying that you've heard the message, Christ has revealed himself to you as beautiful and attractive and true and worthy. Your heart is drawn out in faith to him. And then you, you make it known in some public way. There's nothing wrong with giving altar calls. But the, the more clear, explicit, biblical way is the way Peter ended his sermon in Acts 2.38. What should we do, Peter? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. So that's what I want to say more than I've ever said it. In fact, I've almost never said it. That's a defect, I believe, in my preaching. And we feel it as a defect in our, in our connectedness. And therefore, here's the plan for the summer. We're going to put real uh, rubber on the road here. Beginning the first Wednesday of June, we're going to have baptismal and testimony services every Wednesday for the summer. We may take out one. I can't remember, but... I think there'll be an all-church strategy meeting in July, but for about 12 of them, we're going to have services of baptism and testimony. And if you say, who's going to get baptized? The answer is, some of you are. And a lot of people that the Lord's going to bring to us, and he's going to win to himself, and some who've already declared themselves in their hearts are going to be persuaded, Lord willing, in the month of May that this is something long neglected. And to be fully compliant to the Lord's will for you, you follow the Lord in baptism. And we're just making ourselves vulnerable here. I mean, we plan the service for 12 weeks. We're going to do baptisms. And if nobody shows, then we we get on our faces. We come here in this room and there's nobody available. We just get on our faces and say, Lord, why? Because God means for the church to grow, and he means for it to grow through people being brought to himself, not just changing churches, even from Lutheran churches, or Catholic churches, or any other kind. God means for people to be converted. And so, the absence of baptismal candidates will be a radically indicting call to get on their face and fast and pray before the Lord. So that's where we're going. Now, when we said that, Let's do baptisms every Wednesday night through the summer. By the way, if you wonder where and how, our plan is do the first four right here. I'm standing on a baptismal pool. If you wonder how we do it, it's right here. This is water underneath me. And then in July and August, we're going to go off-site to the lakes and swimming pools. And so if you are living in an apartment complex, say, and you could get permission for 100, 200 people to have a big party at your pool, we'll come. You go to David Livingston and say, let's do it at my apartment building or in my backyard. And I'll invite all the neighbors. We'll do that. So we'll be looking for about eight pools or, or lakes to do it in during July and August and make it as public as we can. And those will be testimony services, not just me preaching. Because here's what happens. When a person 
makes a, a decision to go public as that and to do something as strange as baptism, they tend to tell their relatives and friends and, and invite them to come. And we'll probably make up some little invitations that you can send out and we'll get all these unbelievers who love their relative and are willing to at least come to this special thing in their lives and let them tell Jesus right there about what they're doing. Why are we doing this? What's this mean? And I'll just say some words about the meaning of it and, and then we're going to have food, probably. Hot dogs and Shasta Pop and, and uh, potato chips. Other really valuable foods. And it'll be a wonderful, we believe, powerful time of testimony as people make this move of obedience through the waters of baptism in faith. So there's the, there's the reasoning behind it all. Watch for more about it. What we want to do this morning is take some minutes and look at the beginning of baptism in the New Testament with the baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the origin, as far as we know, of Christian baptism. It's hard to go back behind John the Baptist. Somebody asked me after the first service, can't we really find out where he got this idea? And I'll I'll just tell you that many scholars will argue that he borrowed it from Jewish proselyte baptism. That is, we know that in the later first century, Jews baptized for purification Gentiles who became Jews. But there is no sure historical evidence that that practice started before Christians started baptizing. So I can't tell you with any certainty where John got the idea. Except, I proposed to this fellow who we were talking to, that it is just as likely as anything else that as John the Baptist was in the wilderness dealing with God's call on his life to be the way preparer for the Messiah, I can picture this poor young man saying, how am I supposed to do that? This is dangerous. Calling for the assembly of a new people of God out of Jews to assemble around the Messiah that I don't even know yet who he is. How shall I do it? And God says, why don't you baptize them? What's that? Well, go to the river and take them in the river and put them under the water and bring them up. And that'll be a clear break with the old ways and they will now be part of the new messianic people. He says, okay. And I don't know if it happened that way or if he borrowed it and God said, use that, use that. But he got it from somewhere and that's where we get it. It starts with John, it picks up with Jesus, and then Jesus says, do that until I come. Lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. You keep doing that until I come. So this this thing is built right into this building. That's not an accident. Jesus says, do that. Don't stop doing that until I come. Now, let's get the situation before us here in chapter 3. He comes, it says in verses 1 and 2, into the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's in Judea and he's talking mainly to Jews. Probably not only, because he does address in Luke some soldiers. And these soldiers are probably not Jews. So anybody who'd come, but it's, it's, it's Jerusalem who's streaming out to him and he's preaching to Jews, repent and be baptized. Now you gotta get the picture here because this is incredibly radical what he's doing. 
Just like it's radical to be a Baptist in Minnesota. It's like being a sect. Just like being in West Germany. I, I, I went to the University of Munich in the Lutheran faculty for three years. Everybody in Germany is Lutheran or Catholic. This is right there. They check it off and your tithe comes out of your income tax. Just check it off on your form. And so here I am in these classes as an American Baptist. And as far as they know, that's the tiniest little weird sect you can imagine. They don't know there are 14 million Southern Baptists and a lot of others besides. And when I came to Minnesota, I saw exactly the same thing. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. You know what you see on every other corner in Greenville, South Carolina? A Baptist church. You come here, what do you see on every other corner? A Lutheran church or a Catholic church. So being here in Minnesota is just like being in West Germany. And preaching what I'm about to preach is like John the Baptist preaching to Jews. Now get that. That, that is really a very close parallel. Now not all those Jews are lost, and of course not all Lutherans and Catholics are lost. Please, don't hear, don't hear that. The point is, John is calling God's people, the Jews, to repent. And these Jews have already received the sign of the covenant. Namely what? Circumcision. At least the boys have. Which is one of the problems that it has. When you come over into the church, God means for a new sign to be there not only for some reasons, but also that manhood and womanhood be united more fully in the covenant. So baptism is being preached now to these Jews as the sign of their repentance. This does not go over well with the Pharisees and Sadducees, as we'll see in just a minute. Look at verse 6. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John's baptism is called the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, he's, he's summoning Jews who are already God's people, in some sense, to repent and to confess their sins and to become part of a new, true, messianic people who respond to the way preparer, and then in a few weeks, to the way himself, Jesus. Now, he goes even further. Verse 7, look what's at stake. When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then later down, he talks about the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So what's the picture here? He's actually saying, now get this, he's Jewish. And the Messiah is Jewish. There's no anti-Semitism going on here. It's all Jews talking to one another here. And he says to the mass of people who are coming, or particularly to the Pharisees and Sadducees, who warned you to flee from wrath? There's wrath coming upon you. In fact, it's like an axe laid to the root of your trees. Getting ready to go whack 
and sever you from God. Now that is infuriating. How do they respond to that? John can read their minds. He doesn't quote them here, but you can see in verse 8 what they're saying, and he reads it. He says, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And then verse 9, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, what are they saying? What, what does he say they're saying? He says, don't even begin to think that you can bring out the argument that because you are the children of Abraham, wrath can't fall on you, which is just what they were saying. They're saying, wait a minute. Don't you know you're not talking to Gentiles here who eat ham and are uncircumcised. You're talking to covenant people chosen by Almighty God and you're telling us wrath is coming on us? And John says, yes, and unless you repent, you'll perish. Now, they have a very sophisticated argument here for why wrath can't come upon them. It goes like this. We know from the Bible, the Old Testament, that God is faithful to his promises. God does not lie. He does not break his promises. God has made promises to the covenant people, the Jews. And he has sealed those promises with the sign of the covenant circumcision. We were born of Jews. We are Hebrew born of Hebrews and Jews born of Jews. And we have the sign of the covenant. And therefore the promises will come true to us and he will not destroy us. So are you calling the faithfulness of God into question, Mr. John the Baptist? So their, their sense of safety in their presumption is rooted in the faithfulness of God. So what can John say? He says the most stunning thing that you can imagine. He says in verse 9, at the end of the verse, Don't say, we have Abraham as our father. I say to you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Wow. Now there's a, there's a knocking of your whole foundation out from underneath you. You see what that does to their argument? He says, you're right. You got one thing really right. God is faithful. God never lies. God keeps his promises. The children of Abraham will be saved if they repent. And if they don't, and there are none here to save, God will make them out of stones to fulfill his promises. You get it? I'm one of those. I'm one of those. This stone got turned into a child of Abraham. And I'm getting ahead of myself in saying that. That's, that's Galatians. This is Matthew 3, but it's all here. It's amazingly all here. God can raise up from stones children to Abraham, so do not presume upon your descent 
from Abraham as boxing God in. You gotta save me because I was born of Jews and you are stuck. It's not true. He's not stuck. He can snap his finger and all Jews perish and a whole new generation of Jews comes into existence out of stones, if he please. Don't ever presume upon the faithfulness of God as though anything but faith and repentance gives you a standing with him. It's a stunning answer. Now let me try to sum this up. What have we seen in John's teaching on baptism? Number one, three concluding points. Number one, what we have seen is that John's baptism is not a simple continuation of circumcision. Now, this is important. Some of you come from good, solid, reformed traditions. I love the reformed tradition, except for this part, where it has been taught that Just as in the Old Testament, the covenant people gave the sign of the covenant circumcision to their children as infants, so in the new covenant people, the covenant parents in a covenant family should give the sign of the covenant baptism to their children as infants. That's the argument. The continuity of the covenants as it was done to the old, in the old covenant to infants, so do it in the new covenant to infants. Now, the problem with that argument is that John, and we will find Paul after him, is radically disjoining circumcision and baptism in their meaning. He is speaking to people who already have the sign of the Old Covenant signifying family descent in external covenant blessings. A Jew born to a Jew gets the sign of the covenant circumcision. And he's calling all those people to a new people through repentance and faith and giving them a new sign to show that the old sign given to the children of the flesh does not make them children of God. That's language taken from Romans 9, 8. Paul is more strong on this than John the Baptist is. In other words, what I'm saying is, what you have here at the very beginning is the seeds that are in radical assault on the foundations of infant baptism. This is an assault on the foundations of most thinking about infant baptism. Namely, if a child is born into a covenant family by virtue of his physical birth, therefore he should receive the sign of the covenant because the promises of the covenant are made to him by virtue of that birth. And that is what John is calling into question. And in calling it into question, he's saying, no, being born into a Jewish family or a Christian family is of no spiritual warrant. It does not guarantee your safety before God or your salvation. 
what guarantees your salvation is repentance and faith. And I now give you a new sign of the covenant to mark the people who are assembling not around birth, but around new birth. So already in Matthew 3, you have the seeds of Baptist faith. That is my conviction and the conviction of this church and, of course, millions of others, and not just Baptists, who cannot find infant baptism either illustrated or theologically warranted in the New Testament. In fact, and this is uh, another point, I'm, I'm merging them all together here, I realize as I talk, my last three points, my third one was going to be when you realize this, that baptism is given already by John, and he's not even explaining it like Paul does, that it's a death and resurrection with Christ. He's just starting the whole thing in process. Already with him, baptism is a new sign for a new people, distinguishing them from the old people who thought that the sign should be attached to birth. John is saying it's different. And if we buy that, what it does is it aligns us with the rest of the New Testament and, get this, the rest of church history until 206 A.D. Where Tertullian, for the first time in human history, mentions infant baptism and wrestles with whether it is a valid procedure. There is not a single testimony outside or inside the New Testament, the, the New Testament to infant baptism until 206 A.D. Now you check your history books, go to all your Lutheran friends and, and uh, Catholic friends and ask them to find for you, go to their priests and pastors and say, this Baptist pastor said that there is no evidence of any infant baptism, no explicit mention of until 206 A.D. Is that true? And, and you bring me, and I will announce it from this pulpit if anybody can help me find a contradiction to that claim. I'll read you Tertullian before we're done, but not this morning. Last observation. John's baptism is a sign of personal, individual repentance, not a sign of birth into a covenant family. That's what separates it from circumcision. It is a sign of personal, radical, individual repentance that every Jew that walked out of Jerusalem had to make for himself or herself. It was not a sign of being born into a covenant family. And therefore, I realize that what I'm saying here will sound radical to those of you who grew up in homes that were what are called pedo-baptist, that is, you, you were sprinkled or christened as a baby. My talking the way I'm talking right now, I think, is on the analogy of John's talking to the Jews of his day. It was absolutely amazing that he would say what he was saying. We're Jews we received circumcision when we were little, or today, we're Christians. We received 
christening when we were little. What in the world are you saying? And I'm saying that we must all repent and that we should all receive baptism as a sign of our repentance. And so I close by simply saying this. Salvation is by grace through faith and not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, including baptism, lest anybody should boast. I do not call the salvation of a person into question because of belonging to a pedo-baptist church, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic. I don't jump to the conclusion, oh, that person can't be saved. It's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying the call of the New Testament is understand this thing. Understand that beginning with John the Baptist and right on through Jesus and then into the early church, baptism was practiced among those who would repent and believe and voluntarily embrace the sign of the new covenant, which is not a covenant inherited by birth, but a covenant embraced by faith. And so I say with Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. And if you wonder now, what am I going to do with this? Here's some options for you. Suppose the Holy Spirit has already persuaded you. Maybe he's been working on you for a long time. I really should go ahead with this and follow the Lord in baptism. Then come to me or one of us here at the front and tell us so that we can get you on the preparation list or fill out a little piece of paper and hand to one of us or give David Livingston a call or come back next Sunday. That little tear-off part on the bulletin is going to have on it another option where you can check and it'll say something like... Um, Expressing my faith in baptism, where it gives that long list on the back, pastoral call, receive the newsletter, becoming a Christian. Expressing my faith in baptism. You can check it off there. But don't put this out of your mind. Pray about this. Seek the Lord about this. None of us has the last word. I am commending to you what seems to me to be a very strong case that baptism is very important And it is a new sign for the new covenant people who are constituted not by birth, but by faith. Father, as we go, set everyone to praying and to thinking. And like the Bereans in Acts 17, who were more noble than the Thessalonians, set your people to searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, I pray. We bless you for the precious ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and we bless you for the gift of baptism, which so beautifully portrays that it is not of us, but it is wholly of you, Christ, dying and rising and binding us to yourself by faith in this burial in water and rising to walk in newness of life. Dismiss us now with your blessing and keep us pursuing you with all our heart and all our soul. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.